and Hare Krishna. Welcome to this Chasing Reality podcast with me, Ryan, aka Ramananda Das. So today we have with us Shahanika Rathnike, who is based in Cambridge. And she's originally from a few different places. <laughs> um, I think Australia, New Zealand, and Sri Lanka. Uh, she has a Buddhist, um, she's brought up um, in a Buddhist family, and um, she's been studying philosophy at the University of Cambridge, and now she's particularly interested in um, understanding some aspects to do with psychotherapy, uh, mindfulness, and philosophy. So I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to this podcast. We have Sahanika Rathnike with us today from Cambridge. Hey, Sahanika, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm well, yes. We're all locked down, and I've got the, uh, I've got the COVID haircut. It's kind of coming around, it's kind of like, like this. So. <laughs> I've been tempted to shave it off, but not yet. I think a lot of people are resorting to that. Yeah, it's easier and, and certainly cheaper. So I, the reason I, I asked you to, to have a chat today is because I read your Aeon, I don't, I don't even have to say Aeon or Aeon. I have to confess, I don't know either. Okay, and good. I, I've good. been switching between the two. I, I feel thoroughly ashamed. I should know by now. <laughs> Let's just say it's simultaneously both and neither. <laughs> neither. Lovely. So, <laughs> so I, I read your AN article. And, um, and what I liked is, as well as I, I liked the article, but it was also a lady who reads it for you, which oh, is really right. nice. I've not I, I just that sat there. And, That's a great idea, isn't it? It's nice. It's like a little, you press a little play button on the left and it, um, and uh, it, it, you, you kind of just listen away instead of it's like an audio book, mm. um, but I'm babbling on. So I, I read your article and it really struck me, something struck me in the heart, that you are, you are a philosopher on a fascinating journey. And as soon as I read things like that, they're very personal and come across in that way, I immediately want to talk to such people. So that, that's the reason why I wanted to <laughs> have a chat with you. And, um, so, so my understanding is you, you started out um, studying philosophy at Cambridge. You even, I think you even started a PhD in a certain field, but then you, you switched. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you could just give us a bit of a background to, um, to, to how that happened and what you're studying and these kind of things. So, so it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Um, so I did my undergrad in New Zealand and I done. So because the New Zealand system, sort of the Australasian system and the UK system is quite different, I'd already applied for a PhD and, and I think a series of master's programs in the UK and something about these things didn't quite sync up. So by the time I'd been accepted for a PhD program in Australia, Cambridge also said, do you want to come and do a master's? Um, so what I did was this very peculiar thing where I deferred the PhD, went to do the master's, and the PhD was supposed to be on Buddhist metaphysics and quite like techie Buddhist metaphysics. Um, and while I was at Cambridge, I was, I don't know, I, I think I mentioned this in the piece, I started doing, I started participating in this big mindfulness study that they had undergo. So everyone I know at this point is somehow involved in this study. Mm. And... Just, I don't, I don't know what, it, it's a very, looking back on it, it was a very peculiar period. Um, I know mindfulness is still all the rage, but something about that particular period where it seemed to be everywhere was yeah. quite intense. Um, so 
So most of my friends are involved in the study, even the ones who were outside the university. You know, I wonder if there was this period in the 60s where it was a bit like this, where everybody seemed to be meditating and doing this kind of thing. Yeah, so, I thought that when I was reading your article. Um, I really read it just before we, um, we came on the call. And uh, it reminded me of this, um, the, the kind of 60s, you know, with the hippies. Mm-hmm. And they were all into meditating and, and yeah. Yeah, it was very, there was this, oh, there was this very peculiar day where um, I'd, me and my friend had cycled off to some small sort of suburb outside of Cambridge. And this was a stranger's apartment. And we'd just gathered there because we'd heard about this mindfulness meditation session in this total stranger's house. And this sort of thing is very normal at this time. You, you were just going around meditating because it somehow seemed to be in the air. And I don't know how exactly how I got caught up in it, but just over time, I, I don't know. I found, I felt very detached from myself or alienated. So it, w- it was like these things that you take for granted that, you know, when you have an emotion that it says something about you, what's going on. I just lost the capacity to view my emotions and my thoughts in that way. It mm. was, it was like, I mean, I mean, I think in the psychological literature, there's a lot of talk about depersonalization, which I don't know, those experiences seem quite intense. Whereas this was just more like this constant low level state of what, what is this? I'm looking at the thought, but what do I do with it? There was something about that connection, that tacit connection that I'd always had up till then that seemed to be sort of slowly breaking down. And I thought at the time this had something to do with the mindfulness because that was mostly what I was doing very differently. Mm. But it was also just like a very intense period of my life. I mean, Cambridge is this quite, so I, I think people describe it as the pressure cooker and there was a lot of that going on as well. So. Yeah, I, I just really struggled to understand why I was thinking the way I was thinking and what, what I was supposed to be doing with these thoughts and feelings. Yeah, so mm. so when I finally started the PhD in Buddhist metaphysics, I was I was shamelessly lying to my supervisors, basically what I was doing. I was secretly late at night reading mindfulness books and trying to figure out what exactly the connection between mindfulness and Buddhism was. Because right. because I had a background in Buddhism, I was like when I read mindfulness things, they were they kind of, especially the early work on mindfulness has all these protestations of you know oh we're not religious or, you know we're not tied up to any faith tradition. And I was reading this stuff and I'm like this is Buddhism, like let's not pretend this is very Buddhist. And it's it's one of those things that I think is quite funny the distancing because it's an open secret within the psycho, like the psychotherapy field that a lot of the major figures in contemporary psychotherapy are Buddhists. Some of them are like Kabat-Zinn is I think a Zen master. Marshall Linehan who set up dialectical behavior therapy is deeply tied up with Zen. So it's one of those very peculiar things where it's an open secret, but also all the texts say, no, no, we're not really Buddhist. So I was at this point just kind of tracing back citations and going, well, this is very peculiar. You're on the one hand saying it's not Buddhist, but there you are citing various Buddhist texts. What's going on? Yeah. Okay. So you, let me see if I've, if I've got it so far, because this is fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited about this. Um, um, okay. Let me see. So you're at Cambridge and, mm-hmm. and you're studying, as you said, it's a pressure cooker, but you're like a way all about the blowhole. So, <laughs> so, so so then you've, um, what's in the air, it's mindfulness. And so you've picked it up. But what you've started to notice is that it, you're, um, 
by noticing the practice of mindfulness of noticing your thoughts and emotions, which I believe is what they do, mm. um, then you, you start to, you've started to slowly dissociate from them and haven't um, almost felt like they're entirely yours. So you, you've kind of started to wonder, you've noticed that phenomenon. Mm. That I, as a person, am not associating with my um, thoughts as much, which is what's happening here. So you, so you wanted to look into... Um, mindfulness and its roots um, perhaps within uh, Buddhism and you started to find some 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 crossovers mm. um, yeah you, you mentioned this point in your in your essay and I think you even mentioned it now um, that Buddhism and I make perhaps mindfulness as well um, claim to be metaphysically neutral there's mm. no um, you, you can be a religious practitioner you can have any particular philosophical slant on the self, etc. It doesn't matter. It's just a practice to kind of help. Um, could, could you maybe well, keep telling a story, however you, you like? Well, I, I think, I mean, maybe this is excessively cynical, but I think it was helpful to be able to present mindfulness in that way, especially initially, right? Because um, I don't know if people know the story of my contemporary mindfulness, but basically it starts with Kabat-Zinn. I think it was Oh God, it's one of those M words. I think it's the University of Massachusetts, I want to say, medical school. It, it's one of the M universities. Wow. Um, and it was just basically a stress reduction program. So you would go in and you would be taught some meditation practices and things. And I, and I think it makes a great deal of sense that because you're in a healthcare setting, what you can't do is present this thing as a religious practice. You want to present it as a series of kind of neutral exercises that anyone any patient coming in could do. So I think a lot of how mindfulness presented itself has to do with that initial setting and how, you know, like what it takes to, I guess, establish new practice, especially in these kind of, you might think quite secular spaces. Mm. Um, so I think, so I, I think it's understandable, but what I thought was very peculiar was just, it, it was a very flimsy sort of pretext if you have any familiarity with Buddhism. So. Um, so basically what I found as I was tracing all these connections is there's all, it's very clear that there, it is related to Buddhism. I mean, they cite Buddhist texts, but the thing that I found very, very fascinating was that it's very close to the argumentative strategies that early Buddhists would take up when they wanted you to come to the conclusion that there was no self. So, I mean, you seem to be familiar with Buddhism, um, not least because you made a Buddhist joke, which I quite enjoyed. Um, but, um, so that, you know, the strategy of looking at individual components of your experience going, oh, okay, your thoughts, your feelings, whatever, are you the same as them? Are they impermanent? So all these kind of aspects of experience that the Buddhists would draw, to, draw you towards to notice in getting you to think, oh, okay, there's no such thing as the self. How could there be, when I look at my experience, there's nothing permanent here, everything is transitory. Those are exactly the aspects of you know, experience that mindfulness exercises ask you to look at. You know, your thoughts are impermanent, your pain is impermanent. And even worse, you just get told explicitly, you are not your thoughts or feelings. I mean, I don't, I don't know what more there was to say there. So I found... I find the fact that people think there's not a connection very strange because it's fairly obvious from where I'm standing. Yeah, and of course, you, you were brought up um, as, uh, as in, in a Buddhist family, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm Sri Lankan and I'm Sinhalese in particular. And if you're Sinhalese, it's almost synonymous with being Buddhist. I don't 
I mean, like a bit of my family is Catholic and Sinhalese, but Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country. It's, you can't, you know, you can't throw a rock without hitting like an ancient temple or you get dragged to like um, temples all the time. So it's, it's very culturally ingrained in Sri Lanka. Um, so I, I, I do think though it's, you know, it's the experience of growing up any kind of religious, I think, when it's that kind of tacit, you don't actually know very much about your own religion. You do the rituals, you go through the community spaces, but I'd, I actually only properly learned about Buddhist philosophy at university when I was studying philosophy, and the no-self view in particular just blew my mind. It's, it's just one of the loveliest ideas and I've ever encountered. It, I think it's great. Um, yeah, and I, it was one of those things that's kind of annoying because like if I'd probably made someone a little more of an effort as a child, I probably would have encountered it earlier. So, yeah, the the um, I had that myself. I grew up as a as a Catholic, um, but you know I used to kind of get dragged along and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But I didn't know what I was doing. There. I, I um, it's it's only I guess it's only later when we can really start to, um, if we choose to, start to reflect philosophically on. What's going on here? And it's very interesting, like you said, to find out what is actually happening within the tradition that I grew up in. But I want to pick up on a certain point because I was surprised, actually, when you, you said um, it was the, mo the most beautiful idea, the idea of no self. Mm -hmm. and, and yet when I read your article, I, I understood that you were, it was almost felt like a, you were frustrated at the idea that... Uh, um, that there could be no self. So, so yeah, if you could... Um, yes, so that up. actually came as a surprise to me. And, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, where you find yourself writing something or saying something and it's only later you realise the implications of it. Because um, I remember once I'd published the piece and it had strangely blown up in ways I could not have expected, um, I actually talked to my supervisor about this and I was saying, I just, I think I've somehow argued that no self is a bad idea and I didn't realize I felt that way. Um, it was it was one of those things that was very obvious once you saw it written down. But even, I mean, even now, if you asked me like top 10 philosophical ideas, no self would be up there. So I, I think it's, I think it's that like there's so many complications there with the idea of no self, right? Because there's the metaphysical claim, which is there's just nothing like a soul, which I, I'm I'm committed to that. I don't I think partially because my intuition's already a Buddhist, so I never started off with the idea that there was something like a soul or what Parfit calls a further fact or something that just kind of grounds personal identity. What I'm interested in more is at the level of conventional truth. So Buddhists distinguish between ultimate truth and conventional truth. And ultimate truth is about metaphysics. So what exists? Is there a soul? That kind of thing. Conventional truth is about the usage of language. So because we tend to use all this self-language, the Buddhists want to say, look, that's fine for everyday speech, but let's not get confused those are not grounded in anything. So when you, essentially what you're participating in is a mass delusion, right? Your language is not quite connected up with the nature of reality. Um, and I suppose, I think, I reconcile this by thinking it actually, the conventional matters that more than you think. The way you think about yourself is in the language of the self. And just because there's no such 
metaphysical thing to underlie. It doesn't mean what you do with that concept linguistically in your practices, how you think about yourself, like that actually really matters. So that I think that's where my frustration came in where it was a shift towards the conventional where I go, actually, you know what? It matters the way we talk about these things and yeah. just being told you are not your thoughts, like that's not good enough. Okay. So it, yeah. it sounds like you, what I picked up there was you, you, you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, because I might not have heard properly. Um, there, there are two, at least from what I've heard, there, you said there, there are two ways of looking at it, um, two levels in, in Buddhist thought. One of them is just a kind of practical level, um, mm -hmm. what's happening right now. And if I'm, I'm, uh, I experience that I have a self, I'm, I, am, I am a person, I have thoughts, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the subject of reality. But if we go to um, a metaphysical level, there's the idea of uh, no self, or no self actually being there. And, and the way that you, I'm not sure I understood the way you reconcile those. I, I, I missed, I might have missed that. I think it's more, I think Buddhism makes a very quick jump where once you find out that the metaphysical is not there, you're supposed to immediately think, this is delusional, I'll abandon all the you know conventional things. I'm not sure that's the case because a lot of our, you know, especially the self, one of the things I'm really interested in is it seems to sit in the middle of all these other concepts, right? Like how, how you might dole out ideas around responsibility and culpability, deservingness. So once you strip out that concept, what do you do with all the rest of it? So those questions and how you answer them they will, those practices around that still remain, those pragmatic things still remain, even once you find that there's actually nothing underneath. And I think, I think it's more a shift in emphasis where I think actually it's not clear that what we're all, we should all be interested in is metaphysics. We should be interested in our practices. Mm. Yeah, so I, I think that was the long-winded route I went through. So where, where are you going now with it? I'm, I'm intrigued because you've, You've been on you've been on a journey through, um, through through different philosophies. You've kind of come back to your original um, Buddhist um, uh, metaphysics, and I, th I think you said you were going to looking you were looking into doing a PhD on that, or you would, you had started. Mm -hmm. But have you have you changed now into going going into something completely different, or what, what, what's your route forwards now? Um, so I think on paper it looks like I'm doing something completely different, which is I'm looking at a different school of psychotherapy. Um, so this is cognitive behavioral therapy, and this is like quite popular in the English speaking world. So in the UK, for instance, in the NHS, if you're depressed or anxious and you go through the NHS mental health system, they will offer you CBT. Um, so I'm working on that at the moment, not necessarily in the perspective of the self, but what but it's, you know, it's the like concern in the back of my mind. If this is what's on the table, much like mindfulness, if these are kinds of therapies are on the table, how do we end up thinking about ourselves? And does that, how does that map onto the earlier ways we used to think about ourselves? You, do you know what I mean? What do the practices within religion and around the self, do they translate into the tools that you get out of psychotherapy? I see. So you're, you're comparing. It's almost like um, if we look at religions in terms of uh, the tools that we, we, we can get out of them in terms of understanding who we are, is there anything in the more uh, secular world that, mm. that 
um, also offers tools and how does it compare? Although I think you mentioned earlier that it's not always as, when we say secular, it doesn't always mean um, neutral. Um, mm -hmm. it could, it, there could be more underneath that. I think so. And I think especially because we've kind of undergone a cultural shift, right? Because once upon a time, well, the way you'd come to understand yourself was very much religion or philosophy. And now if you want to know what you're like, you'd go read a psychology blog or you'd go to therapy. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm interested in, I guess, not so much in my PhD, but hopefully I'll circle back to this in future work. Um, something like a comparative project, like does, do these contemporary methods, how do they map onto the earlier ones? Do they do as well? Is, are they handling some issues like around the self differently? Yeah, so I'm quite interested in what the self looks like in these newer ways of thinking about them. I have a question and I, I think this might relate to your particular project. If we take a monotheistic stance, a more say, um, uh, traditional way in Europe of, of, of thinking um, metaphysically, and we, we take we take monotheism in that way. So my understanding there is that there's a relationship. So there's a, there's there's two two people at least. There's there's the mm -hmm. self, the person, and the relationship with the, a supreme person. But with modern psychotherapy, for example, uh, a kind of something that doesn't seem to match is. Uh, there's a um, there's a person, but who are they relating to? Is the psychotherapist trying to get, get them to relate? They can't be getting them to relate to a higher being. Mm -hmm. So who are they trying to get them to relate to? And, and is that is that an issue? Is that one of the issues of transference that we get that people kind of cling to uh, to, to 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 kind of another human being to be the? I think what's been really interesting is, so the issue of transference is very big in psychoanalysis, but what's really peculiar is as you get to even more contemporary things, even that drops out of the picture. Okay. And it, it feels like what's going, and you can kind of see this in mindfulness, it feels like what people are interested in is just what's going on in your head on its own terms. So it's not actually relational to another person. And it's, it's something I find very, that shift is very peculiar because I mean, in, my, in mindfulness in particular, you can see this, right? So at no point do you get asked to think about, you know, examining your thoughts and feelings in relation to someone else. How does that person make you feel? What's going on there? Are you behaving well towards them? All the relational things fall out of the picture in a very strange way. And mm. I, I think in CBT in particular, I was thinking about this recently because I feel like in CBT you're asked, you know, you often, people often go to therapy for interpersonal problems. Like, you know, you go to couples counseling and in that situation, you relate to one, to the person you've come with, but it's very much problem focused. So it's not about developing any kind of interpersonal connections. It's very much like, how do we make sure the problem doesn't persist? Mm. So yeah, I find that, such a strange shift and I, I wish I was a historian because if I was I would have the tools to figure out what happened there but um, I think if you're a philosopher you you see the conceptual changes and you're just sitting there puzzled hoping someone else can give you some context about how that happened exactly. What would you uh, the more I talk to you I you sound you sound like a philosopher but is there is there a um what is 
is there a field called psychophilosophy or something like that? Because it, it sounds like you're kind of in there. Like, it, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of psychology, but there's also um, philosophical grounding. I'm just wondering about your thoughts on that. I mean, that's what I was really surprised by, because I thought there surely must be people working in this. And what's quite strange is there's people working in adjacent areas. So there's people working in philosophers of cognitive science, philosophers of psychiatry, but somehow psychotherapy, and I think because contemporary psychotherapy is very, very contemporary, so 1960s onwards, that's just become a neglected field somehow. So I feel like I'm somehow mm. in this tiny corner with everyone having these debates around me and they're, they're very relevant, but I, um, I keep thinking, I would like someone to talk to specifically about this. I, I hope I hope it will take off because I think what's happening is a lot of people tend to think of therapy still as, you know, there was psychoanalysis and that's it. And I'm like, no, no, lots of things happened after that. And it would be good to talk about those things as well. Yeah. I'm very interested actually in, in the field of psychotherapy, especially I've, I've been kind of trying to assess within my own um, spiritual tradition. Um, if I was going to go down a route of psychotherapy, where would I, where would mm. I go? Um, and I've noticed I'm very drawn to archetypal personas or personality types. Mm. Um, not that I think personally that that is the person I see it more as an avatar. Mm. Um, I'm using a, a certain persona, but, 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 but I'm also, I'm also particularly drawn to, I mean, I guess to, to Jung in that sense. Um, but to, to a lot of the more recent, like Carl Rogers, mm. um, person-centered, really just the idea that if you just listen to someone, they've got everything they need. We don't have to know the mechanism of everything. They've kind of got everything they need to be able to figure it out. It's just that we need to um, uh, al allow someone the space to, to connect and be heard. There's something very powerful in that. And I'm, I'm very interested in that relational aspect. Like, what is mm. that? Um, what is it that, that in that relationship allows something to be resolved? I find it quite fascinating. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I'm finding quite alarming about the term contemporary psychotherapy is taking away from the relational. And especially like it's getting quite stuck because now people are accessing psychotherapy just, you know, in apps or through, you know, workbooks completely without that other person is like there's a lot of speculation that what actually works in psychotherapy is that relationship itself that you get to go and there's this person that you, I, and it's not clear what the active ingredients of that relationship are maybe it's the empathy or that it's kind of a space outside of your ordinary life or someone gives you an external perspective on it but i'm it's one of the things that i'm a little bit worried about that as we move away from that therapeutic relationship what are we losing so you you think that um as things get more, I guess as tech, as, as we kind of start to use technology and productize things, mm. um, we get apps and all sorts of stuff for mindfulness and, and psychotherapy. Um, and, and then is, is something missing in terms of that relationship, which just trying mm. to do it on our own. I, I have to say, I know what you mean, because I've noticed in my own self, it hasn't been easy in, in spiritual life. Trying to be a spiritual practitioner has been quite difficult. Um, and, and I have noticed that when I do reach out to friends and friends where we kind of allow each other, there's not so much, um, it's, it's not like, oh, you, I say something and they say, oh, you should do this. 
it's more like we just, you know, we've got this understanding, okay, this person's having difficulty right now. I think there's something very important about friendship, um, mm. which I haven't quite got my finger on, and I don't know if I will, <laughs> um, that is mimicked in a, like, I question whether it could be mimicked in a psychotherapeutic relationship. I think there was a conversation between Boober and um, Rogers on this mm. particular point. Um, Rogers was arguing that, no, there is, it is possible for the relationship to be, um, to, for there to be a real uh, a therapeutic relationship between a client and a psychotherapist. And Booba was saying, well, no, it's the I-thou I, relationship. Mm. You can't just um, pay someone. What about all this stuff? You go and pay them. It's completely taken away from the point that you have this natural relationship. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, I find it a very fascinating topic. Yeah, I find it very difficult to see how the therapeutic relationship could be an either relationship. But I mean, I certainly, because you definitely read about these things where people have very intimate relationships with their therapists, but it tends to be ones where you've had, you know, several years long therapy with the same person, which is also increasingly not happening. So, yeah, I, I would be very interested to know if that's possible because I do. Well, I mean, because the out there relationship doesn't have to be a relationship between equals, I guess. But hmm. yeah, it's, I, I mean, the financial aspect of it doesn't help. I know, it's, it's like you're paying them. Because <laughs> yes. like, yeah. that's more than it's very much like a service that you want someone to do something to you. Like you go to the doctor and they give you a thing, they fix you right up and send you off. So I think, yeah, I, I, be, I should read that dialogue. That sounds very interesting. It's, it's, um, it, it reminds me, as you were speaking, it reminded me of something um, in, in traditional uh, Vedic culture, you know, ancient Indian culture, if you mm -hmm. want to call it that, there were different, um, it was recognized there were different, there were people with different particular inherent skills in any mm -hmm. one life. And so there was, there were a, um, a group of people called Brahmanas. Now mm -hmm. the word gets thrown around all, all over the place now, but the idea is it's, it's a class of people that can't be purchased. They're unpurchasable. Mm. They, they don't want anything. They're completely renounced. They go around, they're the counselors. Mm -hmm. And they used to guide based on scripture, Shastra. And the individual, they used to know the individuals. They used to go around and, and get to know people. And people used to give donations, but they never charged. So it's very mm -hmm. interesting. It seems in my mind, I've got this image of a psychotherapist being a kind of, uh, it's an attempt being a Brahmana, but unfortunately the society doesn't allow, the structure mm. society doesn't allow for them to really do what they want to do, which is just to give them a full heart and um, to another person and just trust that I'll be maintained. Mm. I mean, I think because a lot of histories of that therapy as a profession draw that line all the way back into sort of religious practice. And I think that's right, except you do wonder what, I guess those, you know, those capitalized capitalist I guess influences are taking away from it it's been it's been a long time since we didn't pay for that relationship <laughs> I think yeah mm. I've hijacked this conversation it's because you got no, me no, so no, excited just... about all this <laughs> no no it's really fascinating it's it's something I think about so I especially think about this because um the way therapy is evaluated now has moved into a very very scientific model so it's basically tested the same way as pharmaceuticals um, with randomized control trials. And one of the things people worry about there is 
that's not actually telling you what the active ingredients are of this thing are. Is it the therapy itself? Is it the relationship with the therapist? And I thought I have like quite a lot of sympathy for the view that you could be doing practically any, you know, school of therapy, but if your therapist is good and the relationship is solid, that's going to do the work. So yeah, no, I think about this a lot. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> okay, so it, it sounds like you've got your um, your roots set out in terms of where you're where you're going with your um, with your studies over the next, I guess, was it four or five years? Um, so PhDs here are three years, but usually they run into four. So I think at least I've got two more years. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, it's it's. I mean, it's been really nice talking. I've I've been looking forward to this for for a while to really kind of get you get your perspective on things. Since reading your article, I've wanted to understand how you kind of. Um, see psychotherapy and, and mindfulness from a philosophical standpoint and especially that that question of self that's that's a that's a question that um truthfully I never used to think about it I never used to even I studied biology it wasn't something that kind of I, I even considered um, but if you could give a, a message to any up-and-coming philosophers or thinkers um, nowadays about who are interested in this topic inspired by what you're saying what, what would you how would you encourage them Oh God, um, in the self, I mean, I I would encourage people to actually go read some Buddhist philosophy because it's so outside the tradition, the Western tradition of thinking in this stuff that at the very least, even if it's not for you, it gives you a chance to clarify where you stand on it. And there's some really like increasingly gorgeous new work on it and very, it depends on how philosophically inclined you are, but there's like a growing literature on Buddhism anyway. Um, I quite like Siddharth's Buddhism as philosophy, but I have a bad feeling that's a bit dense and dry if you're not already a philosopher. So um, yeah, I, I, I found thinking through philosophical problems, you know what you want ideally is to step into another tradition so you can see how you think about yours from that you know, outside perspective. So I would definitely encourage people, and Buddhism I'm biased, that's because that's the one that I'm particularly fascinated with, but it's a good place to start, I think. Good, okay. Well, thank you very much, Sahanika, for, for joining me today. No problem, thank you for having me. Okay, so thank you for joining me on this podcast episode with Sahanika. I really enjoyed speaking with her. And she might not realize this because it is kind of, this is the part that I do after the talk. Um, and I haven't told her this. The reason why is because I don't agree with her metaphysical assumption of the non-self. Um, I experience that I have always been me as an observer of reality um, from, from childhood to, to youth to teenage years <laughs> to, uh, to now. I'm a bit older than a teenager, but anyway. But the way I see it is that I'm in a virtual reality suit that I call the body, we call the body and mind. And I'm, I'm always me. There's no question that I am me. Yes, my personality has changed. Yes, my body has changed. But I am me. And I am me because I am eternally me. And maybe I can't remember exactly who I am. Um, but I'm with Descartes on that one. But um, I think therefore I am. 
I wouldn't necessarily just say think. I guess I, I, um, I experience, <laughs> therefore I am. Something like that. Anyway, the reason why I really appreciated speaking to Shahanika is because she did something very, she's doing something very significant in my perspective. She's admitting, very honestly, this is my metaphysical belief system in the non-self. For practical purposes, yeah, let's talk about personality and stuff, but there is no real me. And I like that. It was a kind of breath of fresh air. She just said it. Like I said, I don't agree that that is the actual situation in the world. Um, but who can prove it? It's a self-evident experience. Uh, who, who can come along and say, well, you should, you should do this. Um, that's, um, <laughs> that's not very reasonable in my opinion. It's up to individuals based on knowledge, based on experience to make their own decisions. And so what I appreciate was that honesty. It was very, I felt relief actually, it was nice. And, but it wasn't just that. What Shahanika is doing is she has noticed that in mindfulness and some forms of psychotherapy, there is an underlying metaphysical assumption of no self, which has crept in, which is not crept in, but it's basically infused in from some of the founders of these practices. And people who are unaware of this go along and they don't realize that they're not only signing up for a little bit of peace of mind, they're signing up for an experience um, that has a deep philosophy embedded into it and which will affect them. And they, they might not realize afterwards why they've been affected, but they might not feel satisfied necessarily. Um, and what I take from Shahanika there is that whatever we do, whatever we do in the world, whether it's to create a new form of psychotherapy um, to help people, to try and help people, or whatever it is, it's important to be honest about why I'm doing something. What is it? Philosophically, what am I um, assuming? And what am I bringing into this system? So for example, if I were to create um, a kind of form of psychotherapy, which I would love to do, to be honest, <laughs> it's my dream. I take inspiration from, from this conversation I just had with Shahanika. And what I would like to do is to be very honest with people and say, this psychotherapy is founded upon a Vedantic or a Hare Krishna understanding of reality, back to yoga. And, and I'll explain what that means. And if people want to come along, they can, but they can see from the outset um, what they're getting into. And I think that's very important. The reason I say that is because in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna was very honest. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, um, he was uh, trying to advise Arjuna, this great warrior who kind of lost his, he was having a breakdown. He needed a psychotherapist and Krishna was it. <laughs> Luckily, at least from my perspective, Krishna is God. And so Arjuna had the best psychotherapist in town. But interestingly, how did Krishna approach this psychotherapeutic situation? It was a relationship between him and Arjuna. They were friends. That's very important. And you think, how could God be my friend? Well, read the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, give me a call. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to you. <laughs> Um, 
So that was the start of the therapeutic relationship. Um, and Arjuna was crying, shaking, didn't know what to do. But Krishna didn't just say, do this or do that, or believe this or believe that. He gave him all the options. And why did he do that? Because Arjuna has choice. As an eternal entity, Arjuna has eternal choice. And so if Krishna had only given him a few of the options, Arjuna could have turned around and had buyer's remorse. And trust is very important. It's a, it's a very important thing. And so um, giving people all the options and giving them all the information, um, certainly when it comes to psychotherapy and mindfulness nowadays, giving them the, uh, the, the, the kind of metaphysical presumptions that are being made that we're buying that's very important. If someone wants to buy them or investigate them, fine, that's good. Try things out. It's like, go try on the shirt. But if, if we're not told, we kind of, you know, there's something not so nice about that. So I really appreciate this chat, Shahanika. And um, I'm wishing you all the best in your studies and your research, which I will follow because I find them very interesting. Okay, thank you, everyone. And Hare Krishna. Ah!